HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Hardcore, a series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we've taken a close look at the rebirth of American cider. I'm Hannah Forden, and for our season finale, we're focusing our attention on what the future holds for cider. We'll look to similar industries and consider cider cultures abroad as a model for U.S. craft cider. I think it'll add legitimacy to the movement when people see that there's like these serious and storied cider cultures around the world and it's a beverage that people, you know, really respect and enjoy. Um, And they can see what cider can be one day uh, in the United States. And explore how this new industry can empower its community and promote diversity every step of the way. You see small beverage producers functioning as beacons of the community and um, certainly as drivers of economic development and neighborhood redevelopment. And I think it's extremely important, particularly in areas that may be gentrifying, to make sure that that becomes a tool um, to generate more equity in these communities, right? Plus, we'll consider what makes this beverage so unique. So I imagine a future for cider wherein there is understanding of it truly as an agricultural product that is linked not just to the plants and the land where it came from, but to those agriculturalists who make it possible to have that product. Let's start with the dream scenario for cider's future. It's on tap at every bar, on the menu at every restaurant, and in the fridge in every home. You may think I've gotten carried away, but that's really what it's like in the Basque region of Spain. It's probably one of the few places in the world where it's the main beverage. You know, probably a lot of Americans can't even picture a place where you walk into a bar and everybody's drinking cider. That's David Cashian, the founder of Barica Imports. He fell in love with Basque cider years ago on a visit to the region. At first, he wondered why you couldn't find this funky sour beverage in the U.S. A few years later, he quit his job and got in touch with as many Spanish cider makers as he could. And one responded essentially like a week before harvest was supposed to start. And then he was like, if you can come out here in like a week and a half, 
you know, we'll give you some food to eat and a place to stay. Beyond just loving Basque cider, David discovered that there was a rich culture surrounding this beverage. So Spain has one of the oldest cider cultures in the world. Um, in Asturias, you have one cider culture uh, that's Celtic in origin. And in Basque country, you have a, perhaps an older cider culture. So before the Romans showed up with grapes, the Basques were making cider. Today, cider is consumed all year round, and there are different rituals that make Spanish cider so special. From the famous high pour, which entails reaching high above your head and pouring down to a glass at waist height to break the cider, to the camaraderie of harvest season, when people visit cider houses for a five-course meal. But it kind of like reaches like a fever pitch around January, January to April. And essentially that's the time when the cider is ready to drink, the New Year's cider. Because cider in Spain is produced like wine once a year, follows a harvest. When Rachel Fryer, the organizer of this year's New York Cider Weeks, visited Basque Country, she was also blown away by cider's ubiquity. And it was a very, very, very uh, inspiring and beautiful trip um, to immerse yourself for a period of time in a culture that has been there from day one, where they wake up in the morning and they know that they're going to drink cider during the day at some point. It's not what season, it's when they're going to drink it during the day. <laughs> it showed her what was possible and reminded her that a rich cider culture is not totally foreign to the U.S. either. There was cider once. There were cider apples. There are still cider apples in the ground from that period of time in certain regions. And, you know, my reference will be prohibition. That was part of the, the reason that we did not do not have those, um, you know, cider culture still here. And that we are reviving a culture of cider that used to be very um, mainstream. And, you know, it, cider was mainstream here and we are you know, for the layman and for the street word, we were mainstream and we are bringing it back. You know, we're the perfect climate. We're the perfect region. We are the perfect, we are the perfect people to bring back that culture too as well. As far as I'm saying, like Americans, I mean, we love apples. <laughs> Why do we not have a cider culture? You know, um, so it is definitely, you know, um, just bringing back that part of history that is focused on enjoyment of the beverage. Even as we build strong foundations for American cider culture, it seems unlikely we'll follow exactly in Basque Country's footsteps. No matter what, American cider culture will be something entirely its own. Here's David again. Well, I always think that the United States is going to be a melting pot of, of different products and beverages and cultures. Um, that's one of the cool things of being a consumer in the United States. As an importer, David's familiar with cross-cultural translation. And it's that sort of exchange that he envisions for days of cider future. But I do see the consumer in the United States becoming much more educated on the types of cider that are out there and the variety. Maybe right now the consumer, the average consumer, is where the beer consumer was in the 80s, where they didn't know offhand, the average person didn't know offhand what the difference of, you know, what an IPA was versus a uh, Hefeweizen versus this versus that. It was just beer, dark beer, blonde beer, you know. So I do, I do think people are going to start to differentiate. They'll try cider and they'll be like, oh, this is a farmhouse style cider. Oh, this is, you know, uh, uh, a Brittany style cider. 
Um, so that would be cool. As drinkers become more curious and confident, and cider acquires greater shelf space, it's not only becoming a more diverse category, but expanding into new territory altogether. What we're starting to see is an exciting and somewhat controversial blurring of the lines between familiar beverages. I'm really excited about blurring the lines of fermentation way that people like Krista are doing where it might be part grape, it might be part apple. She really would prefer to not tell you before you try it. And again, I love that. I'm like, just just drink it. And is it good? Do you want more of it? Krista Scruggs, founder of Zaffa Wines, is a giant in the American natural wine movement. Here's Krista speaking at a panel focused on co-fermentation. More on that word very soon. For me to make, to ferment, um with an ethos of, you know, tradition, traditions of the old world. And, but yeah, to be here and be in Vermont and to work with one hybrid grapes and also have opportunity to work with apples. I'm also making something truly American in its way too. That, and with these, these co cool fermentation and working these two fruit, these two fruits together and while, all, while also forcing someone to make choices with their palate and not with the expectation of what something should taste or look like. Thanks to the playful flavors found in the craft beer industry, wine and cider makers are getting more experimental when it comes to defining their beverages. When a beverage is co-fermented, it means that multiple types of fruit and sometimes grain ferment together. Yeah, I mean, there are um, plenty of ciders out there that are either using grape skins to color and make make a cider a rosé cider and it imparts a little flavor and there are actual co-ferments like straight on co-ferments um, with grapes and we carry some of those. Paige Flory is the founder and owner of Boutique Wine Spirits and Cider in Fishkill, New York, a veritable mecca of locally made ciders. Basically, I wanted to be the FAO Schwartz of cider. I wanted to be the store, if you say toys and ultimate toy store, you think of FAO Schwartz. I want when you say cider that you think the ultimate store is boutique wine, spirits, and ciders because we really love the product. And when you walk in and you see this huge long table that runs the length of our store with ciders completely covering the table, and then that leads right to a 13-foot bar with with a big tree and a tap in it, like I want people to be excited about it. I want people to pl- literally play as an adult in the space and really have a good time like you did when you were let loose in a toy store when you were a kid. FAO Schwartz meets Basque Cider House? Sign me up. With her vast retail selection, I wanted to know how Paige categorizes coferments. Does this beverage still count as a cider? Is it wine? Or something new altogether? You know, it's co-fermenting is an interesting conundrum, if you will, because if you're co-fermenting, let's say, with cherries, for example, um, that's just considered a cherry cider, and nobody bats an eye. When you co-ferment with with grapes, which is just as much of a fruit as cherries are, (laughs) same idea, except for we make wine out of that. So it starts to get a little convoluted because now you're starting to play with a line between cider and wine, and it starts to to blur that line a little. But 
that's kind of a fun line to blur. And why should we color in the lines? We're talking about taste buds and we're talking about experiences, um, you know, culinary experiences. And shouldn't that actually be fun? Shouldn't, shouldn't we actually enjoy that as consumers and even as cider makers and winemakers? That should be something we should have fun blurring lines with. While there are purists in the world of wine and cider who feel the two categories should be kept separate and pure in their ingredients, Paige thinks there's room for experimentation, as long as cider is taken seriously in this space. What I find very interesting about them is it often tells you that it's co-fermented with Albarino grapes, but it won't tell me what apples are in there. So it's kind of ironic on a certain level that like they're telling me grapes, because that's apparently important, but the apples aren't, and it's a cider. Paige's enthusiasm for cider ultimately outweighs her purist instincts. She's excited by the opportunity co-ferments present for cider to shine through more conventional beverage categories. It's an interesting thing, but I think co-ferments overall basically broaden the whole category, and I think that it will help pull people from other categories like wine because they'll be like, hey, I do like Albarino, so let me try that cider. And it'll help pull people in. In working to appeal to an increasingly broad audience, cider producers must decide how far they're willing to stray from tradition. Do they want to align themselves with beer drinkers or be considered more like wine? Will experimentation ultimately open the door to new consumers Or do makers risk going off course and sacrificing the integrity of their product? Shaxbury Cider is one cider brand that embraces cider's fluidity. They love to explore new collaborations and play with what cider can be. Shaxbury even opened a tasting room to showcase their collaborative co-ferments with Krista Scruggs of Zoffa Wines. Here is Luke Schmucker, a partner in the company. When we decided to do the Modern Times collaboration, we're like, Modern Times puts their cans in 16-ounce cans. So as an ode to Modern Times... And, you know, it seems like something that their consumers like. Why don't we try to put our cider in a 16-ounce can? Since we're doing a hop cider with Modern Times, it's a it's a great chance to kind of play around with that format and see if people are into it. Um, so did that. From a brewer's perspective, what is there to gain by fermenting apples? Founder of Modern Times Beer, Jacob McKean, shares his consumer's response to the recent cider collab. It's mixed. I mean, you know, on the West Coast, I don't think cider has as uh, Southern California it doesn't have quite the same history and the the deep roots that it does in a place like New England or the Pacific Northwest. Um, so it's been interesting, kind of bringing people along slowly and introducing them to cider through beer, um, which is a cool avenue to kind of bring it to people's attention who might otherwise not be interested. But for people who like sour and funky beer, it's a really easy connection. I mean, especially the types of ciders that are being made by places like Shaxbury or that we're doing, um, they have a lot in common from a sensory perspective with sour beer. So if that's the, if that's your jam, you know, a funky cider is going to be up, up your alley. But Shaxbury doesn't limit their collaborations to the beer world. And when we've done wine projects like our Petnat rosés that we came out with, um, 
they were more wine focused using like Cab Franc skins from Lo-Fi in California. So those went into clear glass 750s because we wanted people to see the beautiful color of the cider inside and wanted it to be something more associated with the wine world. In Luke's perspective, diverse partnerships lead to greater specialization and can appeal to a wider range of consumer interests. Cider's kind of the middleman between beer and wine anyways. It's made like wine and sold like beer. A lot of the formats that people buy it in are kegs and cans. And even in Vermont, like it's a very outdoorsy state. And if you're talking about being an outdoorsy cider, cans are a lot easier to transport around than glass bottles. But there are special occasions where you want to open up a special cider. And that's why we put our wine type of ciders, I guess, or apple wines, I guess you could say, in 750 bottles is to kind of guide people toward the the time and the place for those beverages. Shaxbury's perspective on cider is nothing if not playful and flexible, which has proven an asset in this ever-shifting market. I think that the way that, at least for us as a company, that we continue to think about it is we lean on bringing in additional consumers to the cider market by doing collaborations with breweries and wineries is like a very simple way to do it. Um, we realize that the cider market's still small, um, but there's more people that are open to drinking all sorts of beverages across all categories. It's not just beer and wine. It's people are drinking hard kombucha, they're drinking hard seltzers, they're drinking cider, they're drinking all these different beverages. So when you have a group of consumers that are open to trying new things, I think that there's going to be a lot more crossover going forward. They've even dipped their toe into the spiked seltzer market. Although navigating the constant flux of fads can prove tricky. We had a product called Spritz, which was kind of similar, but it was before people really understood what Spritz was. And it was also kind of consistent, you know, we were just trying to figure out what we were going to call this thing. And we're like, the most straightforward explanation of what this is, is a a hard cider seltzer and there wasn't at least to my knowledge at that point anyone that had come out with something that called was called a hard cider seltzer and it took a little more convincing for me i was just like i don't want to trend chase like the i think the easiest way for a brand to lose touch with who they are is if they're just trying to trend chase and just trying to keep up with other people and where oh where does hard cider seltzer live on store shelves people bought a lot of it and it there there was crossover like sometimes it was put in the hard cider section sometimes it was put in the hard seltzer section like the joy of a product like that is then people are like oh well what's shaxbury and then they see it and then they try our dry or our rosé cider and it's just you know it's a different way to bring people in and have them drink more cider but blurring the lines of the cider category can lead to confusion here's jordan warner berry the one of the things that drives me the most crazy is people referring to brewing cider or cider breweries um because it's not brewed it's fermented thank you very much while the industry has reached a point where it can play with classifications Consumers might not be ready to differentiate between what's good to drink and what's not. The process of making cider is the same as the process of making wine. It's fermenting. The problem in cider comes that there are cideries that treat cider making more like beer making than like wine making. And what I mean by that is rather than having a yearly, yearly cycle where they harvest and press the fruit and let it ferment and then bottle it, 
And that happens cyclically once a year based on farming. Um, there are companies that are either buying fruit or juice or concentrate in the most egregious cases and storing it and kind of making cider every two weeks or whenever their market requires more. Um, and that's a totally valid business model and it's a very successful business model. That's not the kind of cider I like to drink. And that kind of cider is what confuses people, I think, because it's often found in a bar on a draft line next to beer. There are so many cider producers working hard to create a market for their beautiful products, but big commercially made brands can pose a threat. What does the future of cider look like? Mass produced or mom and pop? The cider industry is definitely going to lose some of its larger producers, and that's going to look like a scary thing. It's going to look like cider's not kind of still in this period of unfettered growth that it has been for so long. Um, but that's just a drop-off of people who aren't doing things the right way, whether that's production or marketing or whatever. Uh, and I think the people that are going to stick around are the producers who are making things that are really special. And that's, that's what I want to be drinking. After the break, we'll move from cider's intersection with beer and wine to what it can learn from these adjacent industries as it grows. Welcome back to Hardcore. We've looked at where cider meets beer and where cider meets wine. But let's see what this fledgling industry can learn from some of the shortfalls of these other niche industries. So I think the cider industry is is so is really well positioned to learn from you know the last 20, 30 years of craft beer. Meet Nicole Jackson Beckham, better known in the industry as Dr. J. Dr. J is an academic and home brewer who has combined these interests to conduct research studies on the beer industry. In 2018, she was selected to be the first diversity ambassador for the Brewers Association. We wanted to know what cider can learn from craft beer and take a look at some of the mistakes the beer industry has made along the way that maybe cider can avoid altogether. But I think one for me that stands out is uh, to make sure that they position themselves um, to have, you know, transformative relationships with the communities in which they're embedded and with the people who come to check out their product and their brand. Um, and what I mean by transformative is, you know, I think in some ways craft beer has had a lot of transactional relationships. It's been an industry that's been able to um, rely upon people to come to us, right? Um, and the kind of very quintessentially, if I, if I build the tap room, they will come, right? So I think, you know, one of the things that craft beer is reckoning with right now is the need to change its position. So rather than, um, you know rely upon the consumer to come to us, we're having to start reaching, right? And start extending some invitations. And I think 
cider is in a, an interesting position to kind of set its posture from the outset, you know, um, to kind of say from the beginning, um, you know, I, we're also willing to, to kind of reach and make some introductions here. Diversity and inclusion has been an ongoing challenge in craft beer. And let's face it, it's a challenge in the cider world as well. I've got a question I'd love to hear you answer. Not necessarily you, but I would love to hear in this podcast. Why is cider so white? Megan Larmer from the Glenwood Institute and Jen Smith gave voice to a question that had been weighing on my mind. Do you think cider is whiter than other craft beverage categories? I do. I think it's whiter than craft beer. I do think Okay. Yeah. I don't know about wine because I don't know the wine industry very well. But I was recently asked, why do white people love apples so much? And I did not have an answer. Yeah, I mean, we see, let's just talk about New York State. Yeah. So the farm class licenses, you have to use all New York State apples. You don't have to use all New York State grain or barley for, uh, well, barley is grain, but you don't have to use all New York State grain for beer, meaning that you have to have less direct relationship to farmers or likelihood of being a farmer yourself. And the degree to which uh, the the kind of farming agricultural infrastructure plays in that category is going to because I mean what is the what is the level of diversity in agriculture writ large in New York State I imagine Incredibly it's low. like so low yeah. it's almost I mean, non-existent are, right? only- land ownership in New York State is white and cider is tied more to land ownership than other farm-based craft beverage categories. Dr. J sees this particular challenge as an opportunity to make change. So I think uh, there's a couple things that I hope to see in the next five, 10 years that will, um, for me, be um, harbingers of like positive things in terms of equity and inclusion and cider. Um, one, is something that you spoke to early, earlier, which is the kind of placemaking that cider can do with regard to its agricultural tie-in. You know, that's a really long and interesting supply chain that I think can really, really be powerful in terms of um, thinking about the ways agricultural labor in the U.S. Um, involves the work uh, and the input and hopefully um, the decision-making and empowerment of lots of different types of people. She points out there is more than one way to enter the field. And in fact, the diversity of positions is a great way to invite different people into the craft beverage industry. You know, I hear a lot of craft brewers say things like, I would love to hire anybody who's great, but only certain people apply. And this is not just craft beer, right? This is cider, this is wine, this is spirits. Um, Craft beverage has a kind of dizzying array of possible career paths, whether you are in finance or in communications or a microbiologist or a farmer or, you know, in sales or you're a technical brewer or an engineer. All of these different pathways have a connection to craft beverage. And I think we haven't done a very good job letting lots of different people know that they can pursue a really rewarding career, right? Um, And I think the lack of representation in people who work in the industry has really affected uh, who can see themselves in a brand and who feels comfortable um, as a consumer in the spaces defined by craft beverage. 
Over the next five to 10 years, Dr. J hopes to see Cider make an intentional effort to be inclusive. That may consist of generating industry guidelines, collecting data on who attends their conferences and who cannot, and striving to be a positive presence in the communities where Cider tap rooms are opening. Cider has already begun to make some of these efforts, and as a younger industry than beer, Dr. J believes it can avoid some of the hurdles that craft beer has had to face. Its newness actually gives the industry a certain freedom. I think in some ways, you know, not having to work against a pre-established set of perceptions about your product, or at least insofar as beer did, um, cider also maybe has some really excellent opportunities. Craft beer had to kind of work against the kind of preconceptions of beer that were erected like throughout the 20th century. Um, So, you know, craft beer had to kind of work really hard to say, okay, we're not that um, in terms of like big industrial light lager. Um, And, you know, for decades, big industrial light lager poured millions of dollars into advertising that made beer into a a beverage specifically for certain types of men, right? You know, some of us remember like the Swedish bikini team ads. Um, That wasn't intended to appeal to women. And I'm not sure that cider has quite as much of a back history to compete against. Cider isn't starting from a completely blank slate. But as the industry rebuilds itself after nearly being wiped out during Prohibition, It's given a unique opportunity to push back against societal inequity and forge a new and more consciously inclusive way forward. While African-American and Indigenous communities have lost acres and acres, miles and miles of land over the course of this country's history, turning back to the land and being conscious of its unbalanced and inhumane history might help us move forward. No matter what industry you look at, The history of farming in the U.S. is a complicated one. But we're optimistic that by looking back, there's an opportunity to learn, heal, and build a better future. Next, let's hear how cider experts envision the path forward. While cider has a lot in common with other artisanal-focused beverage industries like craft beer and natural wine, there's something special about this very agricultural beverage. Here's Jen Smith. So when I'm feeling particularly optimistic, I think about the evolution of the wine industry in the United States. And I think about how, you know, in the 60s, people were drinking Blue Nun and Definitely still, there's plenty of, uh, you know, imbalanced sweet wine that's on the market. There's plenty of bad wine. There's plenty of jug wine. But there's also a lot of really wonderful wine that's being made domestically. There's a lot of wonderful wine that's being made right around here. So even though by volume, a lot of the cider that's made in the United States is in my opinion and to my taste, inferior, right, is imbalanced, is 
sweet is an industrial product, um, we do see more and more producers making a product of integrity and craft. And we see more and more drinkers embracing cider that is sophisticated and sometimes even challenging. And that that trajectory of the wine industry is something that I am hopeful that the cider industry will see. Eventually, good taste will prevail. And, you know, people take many different on-ramps to the understanding of a sophisticated and complex product. And... Um, so all of these ciders that are, you know, maybe cheap and cheerful or, or, or even, you know, these kind of industrial ciders, they provide a, a doorway for a drinker to walk through. Additionally, kind of touching on the wine industry, we've seen the natural wine industry come into being in the past I'm going to say, I mean, we could say decade, but this is something that went from zero to 100 really overnight in terms of industry evolution. And if fine cider, fine orchard-based cider can see even a fraction of that kind of growth, um, I think we have a lot to be hopeful about. Looking back over the course of our journey learning about cider, we keep coming back to the land and taste of place. Just ask Megan Larmer from Glenwood. All right, I'm, I'm going to go with the like super optimistic, really, really long view answer on the future of cider here. And I, I'm, I want to take it back a little bit to this question of terroir and think about how, how cider actually has an opportunity to even supersede the American wine industry in many decades and generations, potentially. But this is, this is the thing I think that the makers now are laying the, the groundwork for is that you know, one of my favorite tangents to go on is that the term terroir is is really linked not just to a soil type and not just to an uh, environmental type and a climate, but that those regulations and the the con the conception of terroir came out of uh, livelihoods and the way in which people interacted with their environment and the human mattered as much, the technique mattered as much in terroir as those ecological elements, and it was really about the relationship between those two things. One thing that makes cider significant to drinkers and to our food system is its connection to place and its deep agricultural roots. More cider drinking means more avenues for farms to bring in much-needed revenue. So I, am, I imagine a future for cider wherein there is an understanding of it truly as an agricultural product that is linked not just to the plants and the land where it came from, but to those agriculturalists who make it possible to have that product. As a cider seller in the Hudson Valley, a region with deep ties to apple growing and cider making, Paige Flory agrees. But I think that cider is going to veer off and actually um, beat craft, but in a different way that that beer did. And I just don't imagine that these small cider makers are going to be gobbled up by the big beer companies like the small craft beer makers were. I just see the cider makers there, a lot of them own their orchards, they're farmers, they're, it's their parents' farm. Like these, there's some old, old orchards that are producing these ciders and I don't see them just 
turning around and selling that out to a bigger beer company. I just don't imagine that from the people that I've met in this industry. They seem to have so much passion for what they're doing. They don't seem to be doing it simply to sell. And I don't necessarily think that all the beer people did either, but I think it's an older, like apple trees take a lot of time to grow. So you probably want to just keep that if you're making money from that and you have that passion. The rebirth of American Cider is not just an opportunity to preserve our small-scale farms, but a chance to reimagine the industry as something that's better for the food system as a whole. Here's Eric Schott from Redbird Cidery. To me, the ultimate future is moving back to small farms and small diversified farms. And I think from our perspective, I think our ultimate goal is to grow apples and to provide some beautiful fresh eating apples to the community, but also producing really good cider. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's with with the relaxing of massive pesticide use to achieve perfect fruits, we can take the good stuff, sell it as fresh apples, and everything else we can make cider out. So it's, a, it's an example of a system that is resilient, essentially. It's not like one market. And so, Small diversified farms, I believe, are the future. We've moved away from that direction significantly in the last 50, 60 years. Um, How do we get back there? That's the question. But small, sustainable farms that produce really good, healthy, nutritious food is is what I think the goal is. And so... um, I'm very optimistic. <laughs> that, that's that's my future. That's our future. Reflecting on this series, it's been about so much more than just cider. This beverage is delicious and complex in its own way, but it's also deeply tied with our nation's agricultural history, the future of small farms, and a food movement that is far greater than the size of any one industry. Over the course of six episodes, we've seen the cider world's effort to come to terms with its past, with the industry's deep ties to colonial history and our agriculture system's complex relationship with the slave trade. It was important to look back before we move forward. We reflected on complicated truths and sought out leaders who can help forge a new path. Perhaps most importantly, we tasted cider, often while standing on the land where its apples were grown, and gained a deeper understanding of what terroir really means. Throughout the series, you've heard the voices of some of cider's strongest advocates, the people who helped me love cider, and who are ready to enlighten our menus and taste buds. We can't wait to hear and taste what's next as the cider industry moves forward, playing an important role in the fight for a more equitable, locally focused, and delicious food system. According to the many cider lovers we've spoken with on Hardcore, the future of cider looks Right. I need, we need to see more cider in restaurants. We need to see more cider on, we'll call it wine and cider lists, if you will, because it's such a food-friendly beverage. Yoga in the tap room or 
um, having a sneaker swap at the tap room or a chili cook-off or whatever, right? Finding ways to kind of connect. And I think seeing cider kind of innovate ways to, to connect with people is going to be a really positive sign that they are making the reach to make sure that everybody who wants to come feels empowered to come um, and participate in that community. I want producers to explore more single varietal ciders. I want to know what grows really well where. Um, We know so much about, thinking about terroir, about what grapes grow well in what regions. What would really excite me is like, for me to go to a store in Vermont and see like six different ciders all made from this one apple and I want it from like six different producers with their own philosophy and fermentation style and I want to sit down and drink them all side by side and just be like yes thank you I would love for the future of the U.S. cider industry to be based on U.S. grown fruit and for there to be a domestic supply chain um, that really feeds most of the cider that's being produced in the United States and that there's less reliance on apple juice concentrate, you know, imported juice. You know, some people ask me, is cider a trend? Like, is it is it here to say, you know, I, I think some cider makers also kind of like raise their eyebrow and they're like, are we doing the right thing? I think cider is here to stay. I, I, I see it being a beverage of choice. Thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying Hardcore, please take a moment to leave us a review and rating on your podcast app. This will help new listeners find the show, and we would love to hear what you think. Hardcore is produced by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden, with help from Kat Johnson. This episode was engineered by Jeet Paul, with additional engineering by Matt Patterson. Special thanks to Jordan Werner Berry, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and Liza Hamm. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio.